0: Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia and I'm talking today with Paul Post. Paul is an associate professor in political science at the University of Chicago and today Paul and I are going to be having a bit of a discussion around how one of our key international relations theoretical paradigms called realism might help us or at times maybe not help us so much to understand some key explanations for the current war in Ukraine. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to have a bit of a chat around a key international relations theoretical paradigm that we call realism. Now in international relations, we spend quite a lot of time trying to investigate explanations for war And I guess the reason for that is not surprising. There are so many costs associated with war, as we're seeing right now in Ukraine, that it seems a bit puzzling that states or other actors would ever be driven to engage in that type of large-scale violent conflict. We have many sort of theoretical paradigms that try to explain what might drive war. Realism is probably one of the better known of those. I wonder if firstly, you could just briefly map out some key differences between what we call sort of classical realism and structural realism before we dive into the type of explanations that we might get for something like the current war in Ukraine.
1: Absolutely. And you're exactly right in that realism is probably the best known of the theoretical if you want to use the word paradigms, it's typically used, but it's it's probably the most well-known, especially for people outside of academic circles, especially if you start to go into the policy space, you'll hear a lot of people will have a knowledge of realism. And the idea behind realism writ large, and this is hence the reason why the word is even used, right, is to say that it takes the world as it is versus what it wants it to be, right? And so as a point that I raised recently in a foreign affairs piece that I wrote was that realism has always been the theory of no. It's always been kind of the downer theory that it is always each era, if you will, especially going back into the 1920s, starting in the 20s and then moving forward, There was always kind of an idealist school that was out there, a school that would believe, and by school, I mean school of thought, right? And in an argument, even within policy, the policy realm, you would have people argue about the prospects for, say, the League of Nations be- being able to bring about peace in the world, or disarmament treaties being able to secure peace in the world, or even treaties that would ban the use of war. Right? These are these are all the kind of like treaties we put out there. And then later on, there was an idealistic view about the United Nations or about world government. And then there was an idealistic view about the prospects for international institutions to be able to bring about global peace. And then following the end of the Cold War, there was an idealistic view about globalization. So each era, there's always been this view. And what realism has always been is kind of the counterpoint to that. Right. And even before it went by the name realism, which really started to come about because of the writing of E.H. Carr in the late 1930s and early 1940s, but prior to that, it would be referred to as just, well, the practical view. That was literally the phrase that was used by Philip Kerr in a piece in International Affairs, the of international affairs in 1920s, where he said, you know, the practical person will look at the situation and say, you know, these disarmament treaties won't work or, you know, the, the prospects of banning war is not going to happen. So overall, that's what realism is about, is really this very negative view about the world and always trying to, if you will, throw cold water on the ideas that are the more idealistic ideas about international politics. But having said that, that's kind of like at a very high level what realism is about. Now, why is it that realism says that? And that is where these different variants of realism come in. So one view of realism is classical realism. Classical realism is probably most prominently associated with Hans Morgenthau, who was also at the University of Chicago, wrote the book Politics of Nations in the 1940s, became really kind of one of the first prominent and widely used textbooks globally about international politics. But it was from a classical realist point of view. And classical realists say that the reason why the world is not going to reach that idealistic ideal, if you will, is because of human nature that humans are just inherently conflictual. There's going to always be mistrust that is inherently part of how humans interact with each other. And moreover, that distrust isn't just a distrust that would lead to a lack of holding onto agreements, but can actually lead to humans taking violence against each other. And so that is the classical realist view. And then hence the classical realist view about why war happens, is that there are certain individuals And it's just a nature, it's just part of humans that maybe not every person's like this, but there's definitely gonna be humans who are gonna be more aggressive and they're gonna be the ones who could be tend to be more revisionist and some of them will be leaders. And that is a big thing that will drive then conflict and war. Then you also have probably the other major variation of realism is that of structural realism. Structural realism says, well, even if you had people who all were just, say, lovely people. They just, they didn't have this kind of, you know, bad human nature side to them as more. They may very well, there can definitely be people like that. But if you assume, just assume that, no, everybody actually, by and large is well-intentioned and actually wants to try to get along. What structural realism says is that that's just not going to happen because of the very nature of the international system. And the reason why they say that is because due to the international system not having a world government, due to the international system being what they would define as a self-help system, meaning an anarchic system where each country, especially the major powers, have to take matters into their own hands in order to be able to achieve things, but also to ensure their security. Because of that, countries will always have weapons. And there will always be the prospect that countries will use those weapons against one another, largely because that is an effective means of being able to ensure your security, particularly because you can never fully trust the intentions of others. So you may want everybody to have good intentions. Everybody may actually have good intentions, but you can't fully trust that everybody has good intentions. And so that creates the prospects always for conflict. And in particular, creates the possibility that states will never want to fully give up their arms. And that's where it relates back to this notion of kind of throwing cold water, if you will, on the ability of these international agreements to secure peace. And then within each of these classical realism and structural realism, there are variations within that, right? You know, structural realism has what we call offensive and defensive, and then classical can go into neoclassical and new classical. And but by and large, you have either the human nature view or you have it's about the structure of the international system. But both of those inevitably lead to where the idealistic views that people have about international politics can't be realized.
0: Mm -hmm. I appreciate you condensing all of that into a very concise explanation of what obviously are quite complex domains. And as you said, there are many variants. I think it's interesting, this overlap between theoretical paradigms, which might seem sort of in this quite removed conceptual world, but then the way in which the assumptions that underpin those theoretical paradigms actually do often end up influencing policy. And a policy official might not think, well, I'm coming from a realist paradigm, or I'm operating out of a classical realist mindset. But nevertheless, the type of assumptions you talked about, assumptions about human nature, or assumptions about the way in which the structure of the international system might drive states to be defensive or to develop military capability... Could you talk a little bit about that distinction between realism as a theory and realism as applied to policy?
1: I think you raise a really good point. And I think this is an important point whenever one is talking about theoretical ideas and their potential role in the real world. And you see this very well illustrated with, say, economics, where they'll talk about how people don't necessarily need to know that they are behaving according to this theory. It's more that the theories explain that people will behave as if they understand that they are behaving according to this theory, right. And that's really goes to the heart of what you were just saying there. And of course, you know economists say, look, people don't need to be thinking in terms of supply and demand and so forth. It's just that that is how they will behave. And I think realism, especially realism as a theoretical idea, takes that view. That it is trying to explain how the world works regardless of any particular idiosyncrasies that a person might have or views or personal beliefs that a person might have, a person who's in a position of power, who's a, a leader might have or a diplomat might have. That inevitably, either because of human nature or because of the nature of the system, they're going to end up behaving in a way that's consistent with these theoretical ideas. And so, states are still going to arm. There's still going to be the prospects for war. International cooperation is going to be very difficult to achieve. And it's going to be due to this mistrust. States are going to pursue more of their interests, even though they might give lip service to ideals. And so, that would be realism as a theory, is just saying that. People don't need to be thinking in these terms or explicitly recognizing that they're thinking in these terms in order to behave according to these terms. Then there's realism as policy. And this is where one is much more explicit and conscious of the fact that they are thinking in these terms. And this is typically embodied by the word realpolitik. And people will even use that phrase, and they'll say that this is about interest. Yes, we might have these ideals, but you have to work with the leaders that exist, not the leaders that you want to have. That You have to go with the army that you have, not the army you want. I mean, there's all these like kind of phrasings that we've heard over time about the idea that you have to kind of deal with the situation as it is. And what's interesting is in the United States in particular – if you look at, say, the statements of President Joe Biden, especially if you look at like his recent statements, not just the war in Ukraine, but about his visit to the Middle East and meeting with Saudi Arabia and so forth, it is very much in line with a very explicit kind of real politique view of the world. It's like these are U.S. interests and they need to be followed. And yes, we're not happy about the various human rights violations happening that's being carried out or supported by Saudi Arabia. But the reality is we need to work with them. We're going to work with them because we have bigger issues in that region that we need to deal with. And that's a little bit more of a very explicit kind of statement of realpolitik, which is saying we have interests and yes, we have values, but those values are not going to trump our pursuit of interests, right? And that can very much contrast with If not always actions, but at least with rhetoric has been used by leaders in the past, where they'll talk about, no, we uphold a rules-based order, or we value democracy in the liberal international order. And these are the things that we hold dear. And we're going to work with states who share those values, and we're not going to work with states who don't share those values. And you know, the reality is, and this is something that's been pointed out many times, especially in the case of the United States, is a lot of U.S. presidents will use such rhetoric, but you can look at the behavior and see that it doesn't always follow that. Realists would say, yes, you know, leaders can say what all the rhetoric they want, but at the end of the day, states are going to pursue national interests, even if it goes against ideal.
0: Mm. And sometimes I feel like the different theoretical paradigms or the different types of assumptions about the way the world works and how actors operate are sort of like pieces of a puzzle, right? Like they're each describing a dimension, that exists and that is real, but maybe doesn't give the entire complete picture. Like we might actually care about our values and really believe in our values, but at the same time, we're also pursuing our national interests, acknowledging that there are certain trade-offs that are going to take place in that process. So a specific explanation that is often given for what drove Russia's current regime or President Putin to actually engage in this full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I do think it's interesting that this explanation has gained a lot of traction and is often cited. So I'm talking about the explanation regarding NATO's expansion eastward, that NATO's expansion eastward was viewed as a threat to Russia, and that in some ways that almost compelled Russia to engage in more aggressive actions towards countries like Ukraine but might also look at Georgia. We're not looking at Georgia specifically today but say you know generally speaking that Russia kind of felt threatened and then undertook certain actions including the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February this year. In what way has realism been a driver of that explanation?
1: So this is a question that I've been dealing with quite a bit over the past few months, and the reason why is because of not just my own research on the region, and I've I've written a lot on NATO, et cetera, but also because of my position at the University of Chicago, where my senior colleague is John Mearsheimer in my department, and he is of course someone who's very well associated with this line of argument. On the flip side, I also have an affiliation with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, who the president of is Ivo Dalder, who was the former U.S. ambassador to NATO and holds the opposite view. So it's been kind of an interesting thing to be part of two institutions where my senior colleagues have these opposing views of NATO's role in this conflict. But because of John Mearsheimer's prominence as a realist scholar, that has what has led to this argument he's been making to be very closely tied to realism. Now, just because that's John Mearsheimer's argument, is that necessarily a realist argument that he's making? The essence of the argument is exactly as you summarized, which is that Putin's regime or Anybody who would have been a Russian leader following the collapse of the Soviet Union would have reasonably viewed, so the argument goes, the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe as a threat, especially when you put into the context that NATO, of course, was created as an alliance to counter the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And when the Cold War ended, you would have expected NATO to dissolve, but it didn't. It stayed in place and it actually expanded eastward. And That would, so the argument goes, be totally understandable for Russia to then perceive that as provocative, to say that, look, they are encroaching on our, quote, sphere of influence, and therefore we are going to lash out because of this. And that's kind of the essence of the argument that's made, and hence the reason why individuals will say that it's really NATO's fault, right? It's the West's fault for pushing not just NATO, but also EU expansion and the possibilities that the European Union moving there. And and again, the the ideas being that this is both perceived as a threat because this very entity was created to counter Russia and now it's moving into their sphere of influence, but also because these institutions, especially the EU, is geared towards promoting democracy. And if you have more and more democratic states on Russia's border, that can be perceived as threatening by a non-democratic state because it can now lead to attraction for the people and populations, individuals wanting to leave, that can be perceived as a threat. And so that's the argument that's made. And I think that it's not a completely unreasonable argument. I've said that in various forums, that there are some aspects of that argument that I think are worth taking seriously. Having said that, if one were really to think about the realist argument, a truly realist argument would just say that this war is a product of the nature of the international system and how the international system operates, and in particular how great powers operate. And what great powers seek to do is they seek to dominate their region. Right. Now, if they can, they will try to dominate it in lower cost ways by, say, having states closely aligned to them, be economically integrated with them. So in the case of Russia, that would be like a Belarus. Right. There's no need to invade and take over Belarus because Belarus is already very closely tied to Russia and in the sphere of influence. But if a state is resistant to that, then you might have to take more coercive measures and gradually ratchet up that coercion in order to be able to bring them in the sphere of influence. And from my perspective, that is actually a better explanation for what we have witnessed is that the perception within the Eastern European countries following the collapse of the Soviet Union was that Russia would eventually try to do this again, right? They would try to, if not recreate the Soviet Union, at least try to dominate their countries. This was very much a fear within the Baltic states, This was a concern within Ukraine. This was a concern shared amongst many of these countries. And so NATO expansion, the argument that's closely tied to my colleague, would say that NATO expansion was driven by the United States and the existing NATO members pushing NATO into Eastern Europe. That would be his argument. But the reality is NATO was pulled into Eastern Europe because these Eastern European countries wanted NATO membership. That was one of the first thing the Baltic states did. And I've spent time studying the Baltic states in their efforts to join NATO. One of the first things they did as soon as they gained independence was we need to join NATO. And at first, the U.S. was actually very reluctant to do that. You know, there's actually a clip from when Joe Biden was still a senator back in 97, where he said, yeah, the Baltic states joining NATO might be perceived as a red line by Russia. But they knew that NATO membership would be critical for them to be protected when Russia became aggressive again, when Russia would seek to gain influence in that region again. And so that's, to me, the better argument, is that Russia would inevitably try to be aggressive again towards its neighbors because dominating its sphere of influence is what major powers do. And some of those states, Russia was not going to be able to dominate by non-coercive, non-military means. So they were going to have to escalate. That would be the case of not just Ukraine, but also Georgia, we briefly mentioned. These states knew and feared that, so they tried to get into NATO. And indeed, what we're now witnessing is that the states that were successful in getting into NATO, Russia has not touched, right? That is the Mm -hmm. Baltic states. I think if the Baltic states were not in NATO right now, they also would have been very vulnerable, may have already been attacked. And so it's not so much a case of, at least in my view, that Russia attacked Ukraine because they felt threatened by the West, but instead they always had ambitions of redominating the region, but just so happens that Ukraine is one of the states, very important state to Russia, that was not part of NATO, therefore it is a target.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And I love how you put that focus back onto states that actually replied to join NATO after the breakdown of the soviet union because oftentimes this explanation can seem a, a little bit as if only the stronger states in the international system are the ones with agency or the ones who matter and that other states interests and objectives are ignored sometimes within that bigger picture so sometimes it can seem when we're applying a realist framework that war is almost inevitable This is quite an impossible question to answer, but I'm wondering whether you think that in some ways, this outbreak of violent conflict was sort of inevitable. Were we always kind of going to get to this point if a country like Ukraine was not accepted into NATO or could things have evolved differently?
1: So it is a really tough question to answer. Having said that, but something that I have found interesting is that expectations of conflict between Ukraine and Russia have been long predicted. Going back to the very beginning of the 1990s, the end of the Cold War era, as soon as Ukraine gained its independence, this was something that all variety of scholars, scholars who were experts on Ukraine specifically, scholars who were experts on Russia specifically, scholars of international politics, whether European or more generally, just across the board, you saw scholars of various types viewing this dyad, if you will, Ukraine and Russia, as having immense potential for conflict. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Some of it related to what we were just talking about, Ukraine being a large state in the sphere of influence, some of it being driven by the view that Ukraine, more of an ideological, nationalistic view that you know, Ukraine is viewed as central to Russia, right? And so therefore, it would always be a case where Russia would want to bring Ukraine back in to the fold, if you will. Also, there's been arguments made from a cultural standpoint, a religious standpoint. There's a variety of arguments out there for why this has been viewed, but the point is it's always been viewed as a dyad with immense potential for conflict. Now, having said that, does that mean conflict had to happen? And indeed, analysts and scholars have pointed to actions that may have averted this, right? But they would have been actions that wouldn't have unintentionally averted it. They would have been actions taken because of viewing this dyad as having a lot of potential for conflict most notably would be the individual we were talking about earlier John Mearsheimer he wrote a piece in foreign affairs in 1993 about how Ukraine should not give up its nuclear weapons right so one you know point of context is that when the Soviet Union collapsed a lot of the Soviet nukes were based in Ukraine and then with the collapse of of course now suddenly these nukes are in Ukraine, Ukrainian territory, not fully Ukrainian possession. You know, it was one thing for them to have the nukes on their territory, but they didn't actually have like the codes or things to be able to launch them. But nevertheless, this was first of all, viewed as just a major issue that had to be addressed, not just viewed as an issue by Russia, but also the United States was actually one big point of cooperation between Boris Yeltsin and then President Bill Clinton was working to be able to Repatriate you, if you will, all the nukes from the various former Soviet republics, Kazakhstan being another example of this, of a country that had quite a few of the Soviet era uh, nuclear weapons on its territory. But the argument was made that Ukraine should not give these up. They should hold on to them as potentially maybe they'd be able to have operational control of them in the future, but if nothing else, they have them as a bargaining chip because they're going to need this in the future as some sort of deterrent against Russia and invasion going forward. So that's one example of a potential policy that could have been pursued that might have done this. Of course, the other ones is what if Ukraine had been brought into NATO, right? And this is really hmm. where there is some agreement between John Mearsheimer on the one hand and Evo Dalder on the other hand, right? Again, my, my colleague at the Chicago council and former Ambassador U.S. ambassador to NATO, where I think they both would agree with that comment. I think they both would say, yes, if Ukraine had been brought into NATO, say in 2010, early 2000s, they probably wouldn't be attacked today for the same reason why we're not seeing Russia attack the Baltic states. We're seeing Russia being very careful when they get near the border with Poland, for example. So for the same reason, I think both of them would say, look, if Ukraine had been brought in Prior to 2014, because once Crimea is taken and then you had territorial dispute and then there was the conflict, separatist conflict in eastern Ukraine, it would have been difficult then. But in the early 2010s, it might have been possible to do this. So those are two examples mm-hmm. of where people have talked about that. Look, if those steps had been taken when the opportunity was there, that might have prevented this now. But it's important to emphasize that those steps would have been taken recognizing that this dyad of Ukraine and Russia were highly prone to conflict and therefore you needed to take steps to bring down that probability.
0: Mm -hmm. In some ways, I find the latter of those explanations a little more convincing just in the sense that I was having a chat with former US ambassador to Ukraine, Stephen Pfeiffer, and he was talking about how during the 1990s, if Ukraine had have actually kept those nuclear weapons, it might have put them on a very different trajectory altogether where the US would not have felt so conducive towards providing assistance to Ukraine and also just being involved generally and Ukraine being sort of accepted into the international community. It might have been considered a little bit more of like a pariah state with these nukes that no one was very comfortable about. And I hadn't personally thought about that before in terms of how that also sort of shifted the whole trajectory of Ukraine's uh, political context. So when we do see a conclusion to this war, which obviously I hope happens sooner rather than later because of the awful costs that are being incurred, what is the best outcome for Ukraine? Like does Ukraine actually need to be a part of some kind of security alliance, even if it's not NATO, if they want to be protected in future, given that the reality is on the ground of being sort of within what Russia might consider to be its sphere of influence. Are not going to change?
1: This is another one of those tough questions. And unfortunately, I don't have a happy answer to that question. Um, I do have an answer to that question. Obviously, I don't know if it's right, but, but based on my best assessment, it's not a happy answer. And this is something I've written about recently. I had a piece in the Washington Post that, that laid this out. And I've talked about this in other contexts where I view this war as not ending anytime soon. I view this as potentially a protracted conflict, the two sides kind of reaching a stasis in terms of territorial shifting, and as a result, this is going to continue to be a deadly conflict, could become even one of the most deadliest conflicts of definitely the latter portion of the 20th century, but even could reach into the top 10 of deadliest conflicts that we've witnessed. Uh, The closest analogy in terms of what I think this war could become is the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. And that, of course, was a very devastating war. Over a million battlefield deaths lasted for eight years. And in the end, nothing really changed. That's one of the other things that makes that war so tragic is that it was fought. It was ugly. You had, you know, trench warfare. This was where... You had both sides receiving support. Of course, this was a big part of the U.S. supporting Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq, countering Iran. But at the end of the day, nothing really changed territorially. You had over a million battlefield deaths. You had civilian deaths. And it lasted for eight years. Now, could this war last for eight years? I mean, God forbid it does. But I do think that we're on that type of path. And that's what I'm really concerned about because of that it makes it then in turn hard to predict what's the aftermath right what happens afterwards part of the reason why i think we're on that path is first of all because of the military facts on the ground but the other part of it is this war like many wars will not end because one side stands victorious over the other instead this war is going to end when the sides reach some sort of agreement to end it and What is that going to take? Is it's going to take some sort of offer on the table that both sides would accept. And I don't see what that looks like right now. Something that maybe would appease Putin to end the war would not appease Ukraine at all. For example, maybe Putin would say, you know what, if you give us control of everything that we currently have control over territorially, eastern provinces, get to keep Crimea, you make a pledge to never join. NATO or maybe the EU, then we'll end the fighting. But I can't see Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine. I, and in fact, there's been members of Ukraine's parliament who even said that you know such a deal would be completely unacceptable. So the two sides are just not in a position right now where there would be any type of mutually acceptable bargain that could end the fighting. And that's a big reason why I think it would continue on. And that in turn is what makes it very hard to say what the future would look like. But I am very concerned about not just this conflict being protracted, but even if this conflict ends in, say, the next year, I'm worried about it restarting again. Because these dynamics that we were talking about earlier, the reason why so many observers of this region would say, wow, that is the dyad that is likely to enter a conflict, those facts wouldn't have changed. And so you would have the, still the, the prospects for renewed conflict in the future, And that is a big concern for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, not an optimistic note to end on, but I think appropriate to our conversation about realism, not trying to have sort of an unrealistically optimistic perspective. And then we might actually misjudge or miscalculate what's happening on the ground. And that might also inform less successful policies or approaches to what's happening thanks so much paul i've really appreciated this has been a, a fascinating conversation for me i know in some ways maybe a bit of a difficult conversation and really trying to sort of pull those big theoretical frameworks down and see how they might apply and how they might help us to understand what's happening on the ground in a very current ongoing violent conflict but i appreciate the way that you have done that and appreciate you being with me on the podcast today
1: Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.